It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, the big story, of course, is that Saturday Night Live has a new Joe Biden. You know, Jim Carrey is a tremendously talented actor and comedian, but I never got his impersonation of Biden. I guess he did it about four times. I mean, it was all sort of physical comedy and shtick and nothing to do with Biden. It was just Carrey being Carrey. So uh, here's his tweet. Though my term was only meant to be six weeks, I was thrilled to be elected as your SNL president, comedy's highest call of duty. Uh, I would love to go forward knowing that Biden was the victor because I nailed that S. <laughs> but I am just one of a long line of proud fighting SNL Biden. So the new guy, Alex Moffat, was on for about two minutes in a Pence skit. I didn't think he quite nailed it either. I mean, Biden has certain cadences and things which you have to study to be good. Maybe he'll get better. Maybe Biden's, you know, unlike, oh, I don't know, Donald Trump, uh, Biden's just a hard guy to do a tremendously funny imitation of. And there was that problem with Barack Obama. It wasn't only that comedians loved Obama, didn't want to be too harsh on him. He just, um, he didn't have a lot of... um, sort of verbal tics. I mean, he, you know, his, his worst problem as a speaker was sometimes he would drone on too long. And that's not really great for a lot of knee-slapping laughs. Anyway, uh, I like a good uh, romance story as much as the next dude. But uh, this one is kind of creepy. Uh, here's a New York Post write-up on a New York journalist who fell in love with the man known as the Pharma Bro. This is Martin Shkreli. Uh, and she upended her perfect life for him. She quit her job. She divorced her husband. Uh, her name is Christy Smith or Smythe, S-M-Y-T-H-E. She's a former Bloomberg News reporter, and she is doing this big interview with Elle magazine. Came out yesterday. Uh, the life-altering romance with Shkreli. I fell down the rabbit hole, she said. So Shkreli, if you don't remember the name or are familiar with the case, He's currently serving a seven-year prison term for scamming investors. He was a hedge fund guy, and at one time he was known as the most hated man in the world. So this bozo at one time was called the most hated man in the world. Why? Because he jacked up the price of an AIDS drug by almost 5,000% back in 2015. So that's a great humanitarian, right? Let's make a lot of money off people who have a life-threatening disease. And then... He was convicted of securities fraud in 2017. So by the time he goes to prison, uh, she had struck up a friendship with him. Uh, Smith uh, split from her hubby, and she'd been visiting him in jail. And then she quit Bloomberg a couple years ago over her connection to Shkreli. That sounds like a nice way of saying she could no longer work there uh, because she was involved with this convicted felon. I told Martin I loved him in a prison visitation room. He told me he loved me too. The two kissed. It's hard to think of a time when I feel happier. Except she hasn't seen him in a year because he's in the slammer and there are COVID restrictions on who can visit. So, uh, look, I mean, do what you must do for true love. But it's kind of a odd person to blow up your life for. Nevertheless, she's telling the story, Elle magazine. All right, let's get down to it. Story number one. So over the weekend, this story, first reported by the New York Times, just absolutely positively blew up. It exploded. It was uh, an absolute um, crazy, hard-to-grasp, chilling in some ways tale of what happened in the White House on Friday. 
when the President of the United States was meeting with Michael Flynn, his now-pardoned former National Security Advisor, Flynn's lawyer, Sidney Powell, who had been dumped from the Trump legal team, the campaign legal team, but is now back in the inner circle, Rudy Giuliani calling in, and a bunch of White House aides. And in this time story, if you didn't see it, but you've probably seen some reverberations from it, there were a couple of things that were discussed. One of them was Flynn's idea, which he's talked about on Newsmax and been quite public about, that, that the president should declare some kind of martial law and the military should be in charge of rerunning the election in certain battleground states won by Joe Biden. That's right. Let's get the military involved and let's forget about the people who voted in those states, who voted for Trump as well as Biden, but Biden got more votes uh, in Pennsylvania and Georgia and other states. Let's rerun the election and have the military be in charge. How's that for an idea? Well, according to the Times, the president asked Flynn to describe this idea. Also in the same discussion, uh, Giuliani, uh, it came out, has been trying to get the Department of Homeland Security, government agency paid for by tax dollars, to join the campaign to overturn Trump's defeat. And he has asked, and he suggested at the White House, that DHS seize some of these voting machines, these Dominion voting machines, which no one has proven have any um, fatal flaw in terms of shifting votes from Trump to Biden. But nevertheless, this is part of the conspiracy theories. So, so they're sitting in the White House with one month to go before the inauguration, talking about using the power of the federal government to seize these voting machines. And the problem is DHS told Rudy, and I guess told the White House, we can't do that. We don't have any uh, authority to go into a private business and seize voting machines. It's unconstitutional. It's illegal. And yet it was being discussed. Now, I have to hasten to add that as a result of this whole thing, nothing has happened. It doesn't look like anything is going to happen. But the mere fact that this was being entertained by the president obviously is a pretty big story. In fact, the Times itself reports that the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and the White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, uh, using the words from the story, repeatedly and aggressively pushed back on the ideas being proposed. Uh, the, the third idea was that Sidney Powell, who's been running around making these claims, getting her lawsuits tossed out of court, uh, who has this whole sort of Venezuelan communist conspiracy about the election, that the White House would name her as a special counsel to pursue election fraud. Now, that's not the same thing as a special prosecutor. The president has no power to name a special prosecutor. The Justice Department does have that power, as we saw when Rod Rosenstein uh, drafted uh, Bob Mueller uh, for the Russia investigation. Um, Bill Barr is leaving uh, DOJ on Wednesday, so then that would fall to now Deputy Attorney General, soon to be Acting Attorney General, Jeffrey Rosen. But what was being discussed was just having um, Cindy Powell be a White House official, but then she would only have a month to do this. Um, so all of this is pretty incredible. It got heated. People were yelling at each other. Uh, Sidney Powell accused other Trump advisors of being quitters, according to the People Brief. This is all, of course, based on unnamed sources. Uh, and that in itself is interesting um, because I'll get into this with a couple of quotes coming up. You could just say, look, they had a meeting. A lot of crazy S was talked about. 
Nothing happened. White House officials shot it down. Therefore, who cares? Well, who cares except that some of the people, some of the White House officials who were there or later were told about it, were so alarmed by this that they went to the press. And this has been the pattern throughout the last four years, which is when the president, in the view of those who work for him, goes too far. You know, he's going to buy Greenland. He's going to uh, take steps on immigration or the wall or election fraud or whatever it is. Um, they may or may not push back internally, but they make sure it's almost like a safety valve that they whisper this to reporters. They don't attach their names. And it is true that Trump has been undermined on policy stuff uh, by John Bolton, who he now calls one of the dumbest men in Washington. A little in personal interjection here. If John Bolton, former National Security Advisor, is one of the dumbest men in Washington, then why did Donald J. Trump appoint him as White House National Security Advisor? Well, it's before his book came out and so forth. Um, the idea, and this is back on the Times piece, that Trump would install Sidney Powell in a position to investigate the election outcome sent shockwaves through the president's circle. Let's just say that she's held not exactly in the highest regard. So that led to Jonathan Swan of Axios following up on the Times story, quoting one senior administration official, again unnamed, as saying uh, that Trump is, spends his time talking to conspiracy nuts who openly say declaring martial law is no big deal and, continuing the quote from the unnamed official, it's impossible not to start getting anxious about how this ends. Another quote uh, from a White House source to Jonathan Swan, there is literally not one MFR in the president's entire orbit his staunchest group of supporters and allies who doesn't think Sidney Powell should be on the first rocket to Mars. The obvious exception, of course, is the president of the United States. So the president dealt with this very tersely on Twitter. Here's the tweet. Martial law equals fake news. Just more knowingly bad reporting. That was yesterday morning. Now, what does he mean by martial law? Does it mean it's fake news that he's going to do it? Well, the Times didn't report that he was going to do it, just that it was discussed. And in fact, White House top officials, vigorously pushed back against it. Uh, but that was the president's response on Twitter. You know who took this seriously enough or was worried enough about um, their institution getting a black eye from the talk about having the military involved in rerunning the election in certain states, which you got to say, uh, I think the technical term is crazy town. That is not going to happen. That is never going to happen. Uh, Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy and Army Chief of Staff General James McConville, they actually put out a public statement that says, and I'm quoting here, there is no role for the U.S. military in determining the outcome of an American election. The fact that they felt the need to put out this statement shows you that this is not just, you know, people popping off uh, inside the White House, that this, you know, this has an impact, a real-world impact on um, the reputation of the military, which is one of the few American institutions that is still trusted by a lot more Americans than trust politicians, than trust the media, or any of that. And just to finish up in this segment, uh, it's now been confirmed that the Trump re-election campaign will ask the Supreme Court to overturn the results of the presidential election in Pennsylvania. That was officially announced yesterday. Rudy Giuliani said in the filing... 
the campaign is seeking an order authorizing the state's Republican-controlled legislator, legislature, excuse me, to give Trump the state's electoral votes. In other words, who gives a crap that Joe Biden won the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania by uh, something like 150,000 votes? Let's toss that out. Let's get the Supreme Court to order that the GOP-controlled legislature can have this done, you know, never, never mind the fact that he's a Democratic governor. I mean, there's so many obstacles to this. But the, the campaign, uh, if you include the Texas lawsuit, is 0 for 2 in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court wouldn't take the Texas lawsuit, which was also aimed at Pennsylvania um, and perhaps other states. And the, the, the Supreme Court wouldn't hear the Trump campaign's appeal of certain things in Pennsylvania. It has to do with the mail-in ballots. It's so awful, this mail-in ballot law, which passed a year ago. Um, Supreme Court wouldn't touch it. This is a Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative majority, three of the nine justices appointed by Donald Trump. And I guess the argument, according to Reuters, is that Giuliani is saying that uh, the Pennsylvania legislature's protections against mail ballot fraud were eviscerated. But you can't come in, at least based on these earlier uh, rulings or rulings and decisions by SCOTUS, you can't come in a year after that law is passed and say, well, you know, we didn't like the way that election turned out, so you ought to toss out this law. And while you're at it, please toss out the votes of 7 million Pennsylvanians. So that's just a sort of addendum here. All right, let's get down to story number two, which is finally, 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 after months, Congress is going to vote today and it looks like the deal is finally reached for a coronavirus relief package, $900 billion. Now, I have said, and I will say again, it is shameful. It is a disgrace that Congress, both parties, have played politics in this for months and months and months. Remember that other coronavirus relief package was back last March when the pandemic first hit our shores. That was $2.2 trillion. And ever since then, as things have started to run out, a lot of people have been on their own, and a lot of other stuff was going to expire at the end of the year. So what changed? Well, as I've mentioned, two things. One is Mitch McConnell, whose position was there shouldn't be any stimulus checks at all and didn't want much of a deal, is now worried and has told his GOP caucus that he is worried that his two Republican senators in Georgia could get their asses whipped uh, because this issue is hurting them. Congress was going to have to go home empty-handed at Christmas time and say, sorry, folks, we're not doing squat for you. The Democrats wanted to hold out for a bigger bill. They wanted $2 trillion. And some of them, I think, were like, well, you know, why let Trump take credit for this? Uh, the president, by the way, was pretty disengaged from this whole process. Let's wait till Joe Biden becomes president, and then we'll have enough uh, steam behind us to pass a big package. But by that time, the amount of pain being inflicted on a lot of Americans would be gargantuan. So Biden himself says, no, get it done now as a down payment. Now, I don't know, uh, now that this passes, whether... Trump, uh, when Biden, when he takes office, will have the political clout to get yet more spending. This is a lot of spending. Anyway, what's in the bill? Let's take a look. Now that McConnell and Schumer have reached this deal, and they could have reached this deal months ago, but it was posturing, it was finger-pointing. And if you think I'm upset about it, you're right. So here's what the compromise includes. Uh, stimulus checks going to millions of Americans up to $600 per person. And the last bill was $1,200. It should be $1,200. Now, even Donald Trump said it should be $1,200, but he, didn't, he got involved too late to have any impact on it. So if you make um, less than $75,000 last year, 
you can get up to $600. If you make more than that, it starts to get phased out. And it's completely phased out if you make more than $99,000 a year. And I don't have any problem with that. Stimulus, stimulus checks would provide $600 per adult and child. So that means a family of four could get up to $2,400. So you, you, you get credit for having kids. If you have more kids, I guess I guess the limit is $2,400 up to a certain income. Okay. Also, the federal, the special federal unemployment benefits of up to $300 a week could start as early as next week. That was going to expire. Uh, a lot of people thought it should be more than $300 a week. It lasts for 11 weeks. So it lasts till March 14th. And the problem is, we all hope that by March 14th, tens of millions of Americans have gotten the vaccine. But clearly, there have not, will not have been enough vaccine doses available and manufactured and distributed to have defeated this coronavirus. So what happens then? Well, maybe the pressure builds up and it gets extended. I don't know. So this all got unraveled at the last minute when Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey said, we have to change the way the Fed can on its own issue emergency relief. It was done during um, the past year, but the, 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 you know, basically it was an attempt to tie the Biden administration's hands. That got sort of compromised in some classic you know, BS congressional fashion. What, all, what the Democrats had to give up was aid to state and local governments. And, you, and you know, the Republican argument was, well, these are, a lot of these are blue states and they waste too much money and they give a lot of money to unions, so we're not going to bail them out. But it's not that you're bailing them out. It's that they are going to have to lay off, and this is now going to happen. They're going to have to lay off police officers, firefighters, teachers. I mean, that's where most government money goes. And uh, there was a small provision that there's some left up over money from the CARES Act. The states could still spend it rather than having to give it up at the end of the year. But that's a relative drop in the bucket. Uh, the rest of it, $325 billion in business relief, including another $275B for that Paycheck Protection Act, where you have the uh, loans that are, uh, can be forgiven. Also, we got $45 billion for transportation and Amtrak. $82 billion for schools, that's a good thing. $20 billion for vaccine distribution, that's an absolutely required. And $13 billion to expand food stamps. Um, but at the same time, the experts have looked at this, this is not nearly enough that the economy is going to continue to suffer. Retail sales are down. They, you know, they bounced back in the summer now that, we're, now that the COVID numbers are surging to record numbers of cases and deaths. And now that... Um, Tax revenues are down. Small businesses that couldn't hang, hang on, a lot of them are on the verge. A lot of them have already closed, including restaurants. Companies such as Disney and Southwest Airlines are warning of thousands more layoffs. So, you know, this is a Band-Aid in my view. It's a necessary Band-Aid. It's better than nothing. I'm glad that uh, the two parties could finally get together and give some kind of relief to so many Americans who are hurting. But it, it's an interim step. Uh, if, that, if that is, you care about saving the economy. Uh, we'll see where things stand in February or March when this will fall to a new administration. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. Story number three. Politico has a piece about secession. Now, I just want to say, like, none of us, there's not going to be any secession. None of us are taking this all that seriously. But Politico tries to say, well, why is it even being talked about? An improbable idea, it says, uh, that is starting to percolate among the President Trump's most bitterly disappointed followers. So the short history here is Alan West, he's the chairman of the Texas Republican Party, uh, after the Electoral College voted, he floated the idea of a new union of law-abiding states. And then a state rep in Texas, uh, Kyle Biederman, 
previously best known for dressing up as gay Hitler. I Sorry, I missed that, Politico. Said he's going to file a bill in Austin to put the question of Texas secession to voters or to have some kind of referendum on it. Congressman Randy Weber also posted pro-secession material on his Facebook page, becoming the first official in Washington, and this is a member of Congress, to advocate for basically disintegrating the United States of America. Uh, Rush Limbaugh kind of talked about it, then he pulled it back. Glenn Beck uh, began to talk about it a few days later. American militias are talking about it. So it's a bunch of talk, basically. Uh, When pushed on their rationale for secession, proponents waffle between unspecified values, hazy nods to cultural differences, and a vast democratic conspiracy. So, you know, is this reminiscent of 1860 and 1861? Is it even reminiscent of the 1830s when South Carolina was pushing the idea that a state, namely South Carolina, and there were other southern states that supported this, should have the power of nullification to say, we're not going to follow any federal law that we don't like. And it was an enormous crisis in the U.S. President Andrew Jackson had to use all of his political power to beat it back because, you know, if you don't have the ability to impose federal law on a state, you don't have a country. You don't have, uh, and then that could lead to nullifying elections. So Politico says this is all outside the realm of feasibility, but what's really driving the threat, uh, according to Politico, is the people who, who think this is a good idea or at least worth yakking about are using secession as a kind of rhetorical cover for an opposition strategy that has periodically erupted throughout American history, rampant obstructionism and even outright nullification. That brings up the Confederacy in 1861 and also the Tea Party in 2009. Um, The Tea Party in 2009 was using Obama's election and Obamacare to um, fuel what was a very strong, at the time, grassroots movement of saying no to everything except don't touch my Medicare, right? Uh, so an interesting historical perspective. Not something I think we all need to lose sleep about, but it is worth examining why some politicians, even if they're you know a relatively minor number of people in Texas and elsewhere, are using this kind of language. Story number four. Um, Washington Post has a piece about the lengths to which Donald Trump is going to disrupt and undermine the usual transition. Well, obviously, there was no cooperation for a while. And then, by the way, the Pentagon announced that by mutual agreement, uh, it was halting for two weeks over the Christmas break, the briefings for the incoming Biden administration on military matters. And the, the mutual agreement thing turned out to be BS. Uh, Biden's people said, no, we didn't agree to this at all. We think this is terrible. You know, six weeks before he takes office, now a month before he takes office, suddenly you're going to get nothing out of the Pentagon? How is that even possible? So that's cited in this Washington Post piece. Uh, what's also cited is, you know, I haven't talked much about it because it's just, it's horrible and I don't know that I have anything brilliant to add, but this cyber attack, this cyber hacking of many of the most important departments, including our federal department that deals with nuclear weapons, Mike Pompeo says it's pretty clear that Russians involved. Trump said nothing for days, again, not challenging Moscow. And then put out a tweet that was sort of like, well, it wasn't as bad as it's being portrayed by the fake news media, and it could be China. It could be China, he said. Uh, Other things he's doing, cracking down on Iran, urging the Justice Department to investigate his political enemies. Well, you know about some of this. 
The result, says the Post, is a situation without precedent in American history, one president ending his term amid crisis, seeking to delegitimize a successor and floating the prospect of mounting a four-year campaign to return to power. Well, I mean, that part of it, Grover Cleveland ran four years later and won. Theodore Roosevelt ran four years later and lost as a third-party candidate. Bull Moose. Um, president has told advisors not to share information with Biden's team that could be used against him, according to a senior administration official. Okay, so some of this is pretty unprecedented, particularly the lack of a concession and the delay in the classified briefings and all of that. Some of this is absolutely standard. Presidents rush to appoint people the last minute to use their powers to set their priorities. So in the like 77th paragraph of this Washington Post piece, we get this caveat. It's not uncommon for a president to fill open positions during lame duck period. Former President Barack Obama made more than 100 such appointments after the November 2016 election, a period that also included several last-minute moves to cement his policy vision before ceding government to an opposing party. Well, guess what? You know, Bill Clinton did the same thing. Obama did the same thing. George W. Bush did the same thing. So this is a conflation of the sort of more out there, off the charts, outrageous, undermine Biden things that Trump is doing, and the absolutely standard, get your people in place, burrow them into a bureaucracy, and finalize any deals or executive orders that you can to try to extend your impact and your vision and your policy preferences beyond your term, at least for maybe the first year or two. Appointing more judges, absolutely, those are lifetime appointments. So I just think a little bit of perspective is needed here. And that paragraph might have been in the fourth paragraph rather than way down toward the end of the story. All right, story number five, this is just incredible, and I want to read some of this to you. It has to do with the Kansas City Star. It was kind of fashionable maybe 10, 15 years ago for newspapers to say, hey, you know what, Uh, we have a really rotten history when it comes to race relations. We were wrong, we're sorry, and all that. The Kansas City Star did that yesterday. The editor, Mike Fannin, writing that the Kansas City Star disenfranchised, ignored, and scorned generations of black Kansas Cityans. It reinforced Jim Crow laws and redlining. Decade after decade, it robbed an entire community of opportunity, dignity, justice, and recognition. That business is the Kansas City Star. We are sorry. Kansas City Star prides itself on holding power to account. Today, we hold the mirror up to ourselves. And the thing here is this isn't just like an op-ed piece that says, hey, you know what, we screwed up, we're sorry. It's a six-part series that does an incredible deep dive into all the ways in which the Kansas City was, in its own words, for many decades, a white newspaper put out for white readers that ignored the black community. Here's, I just want to read some of this because it seems really heartfelt. And it's an extraordinary thing for a newspaper to do. I mean, they dug into records and archives and interviewed people. Reporters were frequently sickened by what they found. Decades of coverage that depicted black Kansas Cityans as criminals living in a crime-laden world. They felt shame at what was missing. The achievements, aspirations, and milestones of an entire population routinely overlooked as if black people were invisible. Negative portrayals of black Kansas Cityans buttressed stereotypes and played a role in keeping the city divided. When black people were written about by the star, they were cast primarily as the perpetrators or victims of crime, a toxic narrative. Other violence, meanwhile, was tuned out. The Star and the Times, which was the predecessor newspaper that I guess the star took over, wrote about military action in Europe, but not about black families whose homes were being bombed 
just down the street. So also it was sins of omission, just not getting into the crimes committed against black families on the basis of race. Even the black cultural icons that Kansas City would one day claim with pride were largely overlooked, the paper says. Native son Charlie Bird Parker didn't get a significant headline in the star until he died. And even then, his name was misspelled and his age was wrong. Wow. Mid-century, as civil rights and skirmishes against desegregation dawned, the Kansas City Star remained largely on the sidelines. We don't need stories about these people, the editor at the time, Roy Roberts, reportedly said. These people, wow. This was the same editor featured on the cover of Time magazine in 1948 who used to have his driver take him and a coterie of other white editors down to the Kansas City Club for highballs, cards, a sauna, and roast beef sandwiches between deadlines. In other words, they lived pretty high, they lived in this white world, and uh, we don't care about these people. Uh, one last um, paragraph here, in 1968, in the, uh, when five black men and one black teenager were killed in the three days of rioting in Kansas City after Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was assassinated and was going to be buried. At least four, and perhaps five, and perhaps all of these white victims in Kansas City were shot by police. A mayor's commission determined that most were innocent victims, and yet there was no follow-up newspaper probe, as there would be today, no independent investigation, no calls for the officers to be charged or for the police chief to resign. So in that sense, you know, sometimes newspapers of this earlier era, which had mostly white editors and reporters, I mean, it wasn't until the 70s that you started to have a significant hiring of black journalists, and then that can continue with affirmative action in the 80s and 90s and into the 21st century. Um, They reflected the culture, the white-dominated culture, the segregated culture in which they operated. So it's not all their fault, but they, with, with some absolutely notable exceptions, especially during the civil rights era, some southern newspapers taking a stand for civil rights and against segregation, um, you know, they were cowardly. And the Kansas City Star calling itself out, or at least calling out the history of the newspaper, I think uh, it looks, I've read some of the parts, it's really heavily reported. And so a tip of the hat to the Kansas City Star. Hope you had a great weekend. As I usually say at the top, hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz yesterday. We had a lot of great segments. You can find them on my Twitter feed, on the Facebook page of the show, or on my Facebook page. And everybody stay safe. Have a great day. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.